to Blackbird Nines Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. And tonight is episode 88 and is entitled 9-11 Truth from the Top. And if you'd like to join us, you can come out to bb9tradingpost.chitango.com. That's bb9tradingpost.chitango.com. Got quite the crew in there right now. See who else has shown up. A few anons have shown up, but uh, anyway, so welcome to the Trading Post tonight for the Breakfast Club. And tonight we're going to be looking at the 16th anniversary of the 9-11 false flag attacks. And the first thing that you know, for the newbies is a false flag attack is a military gaming strategy whereby you commit a crime... And you plant evidence to frame your enemy so that the party that you're representing or a third party, in many cases, will destroy your enemy for you. And this is how many, many wars are started, especially in the Jewish century ever since uh, we've had world Zionism, and we look at, you know, all these wars are banker wars, and then you look at the bankers or this Jewish cabal, and they're set on global domination and enslaving everybody and genociding the white European race. And that's basically the end game. So a false flag is a way to create an event to get a reaction. This is problem-reaction-solution. And 9-11 is when you look at it in the macro, the wide-angle lens, the 10,000-foot view, you see that it is just one of many of a series of false flag attacks used to push this geopolitical agenda and to neutralize all the people that are standing up against it meaning your nation states and your white Europeans especially. So like any crime, when you're trying to solve any crime, you always ask the questions, who had the motive, who had the means, and who had the opportunity? So go through those again. Who had the motive, who had the means, and who had the opportunity? And most importantly, you always ask qui bono, which is the Latin phrase for who benefits. So who benefited the most from 9-11? So as you go through, especially in newbies that are waking up to this whole new reality of what really happened in history, that they didn't tell you in grade school, they didn't tell you in high school, they didn't tell you in uh college or university, because they love to lie by omission. And that's so much of this hidden hand agenda is you never talk about it. It's hidden by omission. And then lying with half-truths. And then, of course, the out-and-out lie, the, you know, the brazen, bold-faced lie. But you know, these are the means of framing an argument to sell a narrative, to get a reaction. And the way to do that is to get an emotional response. And one of the easiest things to do to get an emotional response is to scare somebody. This is called trauma programming. You get somebody in a traumatized state, then logical uh, 
brain function. You have three brain functions. You have singular logic, where everything just is. Then you have linear uh, binary logic, true, false, yes, no, black, white. You have that layer of logic. And then you have spatial logic, which is grayscale, paradox, and those type of things. Well, when you get an emotional state from fear, you get quickly get out of spatial logic. You quickly get out of linear logic, and you get into singular logic. And that you are very susceptible to accepting whatever explanation is given to you by your leadership as to who is making you feel afraid. And they point to an enemy, and then you identify that group or that person as your enemy, that they are a threat to you and your identity politics group, your family, your community, etc., so that's how a false flag works. And so those are the parts of solving a crime. We always start at the beginning. Like I said, from the top. It's a musical expression meaning you know, from the very beginning. And so <laughs> on The Breakfast Club, we usually start either at the last great ice age or at the beginning of the Piscean Age, right at... 70 AD, when Rome destroyed the temple at Jerusalem, and it began the diaspora. And what I always tell everyone, especially the newbies, that that war against Rome never ended. The idea of revenge against Rome, and by Rome I mean all of European descent people, they're all considered guilty by association in the eyes of these Jewish modern Maccabees that they hate white people for what they did, that they feel they're supposed to be ruling the world, and it drives them crazy that European people have done so much with Western civilization, and they want to destroy that and have their own New World Order, Pax Judaica, or Jewish peace under Talmudic Noahide law. They don't want nation-states. They don't want free and independent people. They want slaves. They want pampered slaves, and they want uh, you know punished slaves. So you get prison labor, and then you get the uh, pampered slaves that get anything they want as long as they're being useful to their masters. Once your usefulness is used up, then you know, you're out the door. You know you're no longer in the entertainment area. You have to go outside the city walls. But anyway. So there, you start there, and that is when you understand the end game of where the Jews want to go in the Aquarian Age and how they want to define the Aquarian Age as being the rule of world Zionism and global government. You know, that is the motive, that you know, they want revenge for one and they want to displace and punish the people that supposedly did this to them. You know, never forgive, never forget. <laughs> you know, the Jews are all about revenge. That is, you read you know, the uh, Pentateuch, the Old Testament, you know, all of that you know, from the very first chapters with Cain and Lamech. You know, it's, uh, it's all about revenge um, and you know, just ruthless revenge. You know, since that diaspora, the Jews who refused to give up their Talmudic Noahide law 
their set-in-stone game rules that think they're the masters and all they want to do is enslave and live off the labor of other people. They've been expelled from over 109 countries over 200 times. Some people put that number at 395, as high as 395, in the last 2,000 years. Okay, So here you get the cliche of the wandering Jew. So in, you know, f- during all of this shuffling around in Europe, getting thrown after co- out of country after country, in 1099, a group was formed called the Priory of Zion. It's 1099, a thousand years ago, basically, you know, roughly. Then in 1118, the Knights Templar were formed. And basically, the Knights Templar was a early model of the Freemasons, where it's basically a Jewish-controlled blood oath, fratern- blood oath fraternity, meaning that as long as you're part of the club, you get all the perks and benefits beyond what normal people get, you, and also all the networking, etc. But if you ever go against the will of the group, they have the right to kill you. And that's what you know, blood oaths are all about. So, you know, 1118, Knights Templar was formed. In 1126, Knights Templars returned from Jerusalem. You know, they went to Jerusalem. They dug under the temple, what was called the Temple Mound. Uh, They found something. And my hypothesis, for those who've been listening to the show for a while, is it had nothing to do with Judaism, per se, but was basically a model of an old T3 copper era master-slave system, centralized master-slave system. And that has been, and it was encoded, and they've spent all this time trying to figure out what exactly it was they had and incorporating that into existing Torah law. And this is what developed into the Talmud and the Kabbalah and the Zohar and later books like The Sacred Magic of Abramel and the Mage. And it's basically how to use these types of master-slave systems um, for control, centralized control. And what we've seen is them developing this and uh, implementing it. And one of the tricks, of course, was the manufacturing of money. And then, you know, the mathematics of interest and compound interest and debt, defining money as debt. Uh, and you know, that, and using that, the psychology of death, that somebody feels that they owe you something, so they'll work, they'll give up their possessions, all because of numbers on a sheet. You know, that's some heavy psychology when you think about it. But that was part of what I, th- my hypothesis is they found. Uh, and this, of course, you know, uh, developed through the Knight Templars and also the symbolism of the Freemasons and all these other blood oath groups. You know, you see these old. Uh, like I said, matriarchal uh, copper era symbolisms and uh, models that run throughout the Templars and the Freemasons. So now in 1188, there was a rift between the Priory Zion and the Knight Templars with what was called the cutting of the Elm Ceremony. Uh, in 1307, on October 13th, Friday the 13th, the Knight Templars were arrested. A lot of them disappeared. But they were arrested by the church and the king 
and were basically rounded up throughout Europe because they were doing this international banking scam and impoverishing Europe and enslaving uh, these nobles into debt so that you were getting misery with the people. And it was, the Jews would get found out, and they'd get run out, and now they went international with the Knight Templars, and so finally Europe rose up and threw all the Templars out, but they didn't leave, they just went underground. Now, the other big thing here is in traditional Judaism, Judaism is a geocentric-based religion based on the old Babylonian systems, and that had to do with understanding what the pole star was, what all the stars, the circumpolar stars, and what was known as the seven free-willed planets. In the ancient astrology, you had seven free-willed planets. You had uh, the moon, Mercury, excuse me, moon, the Mars, uh, Mercury, uh, Jupiter, Venus or Lucifer, Saturn, and then the sun. And that's represented by the seven menorah, seven candlestick menorah in the temple. Okay? So those seven free-willed planets, it's all geocentric, earth-based. Everything rotates around the earth. That was how the model was. Well, in 1530, Nicholas Copernicus published on the revolution of the celestial spheres. That shook Judaism to its foundation because that proposed a heliocentric universe where the earth rotated around the sun versus the sun rotating around the earth. But the death knell of that geocentric model was in 1781 when William Herschel discovered the eighth planet of, you know, it was originally called uh, Herschel after him, then it was Uranus, or as we say in the United States, Uranus. That was the eighth planet. That whole model just got scrapped. And so you have this group of people, which is basically an organized crime ring disguised as a religion, that just had their identity shattered to the bone. So rather than assimilate, they had to figure out a way to reinvent themselves. And this is what gave rise to Zionism, which was that part of, that was discovered, you know, in uh, 1126, that model. And they said, we're going to become the gods on the planet. The Jews will be the gods of the planet. God is dead, but the Jews will reign supreme. And so that was the battle cry of the world Zionists who saw that, you know, the Jews were losing their identity. They were assimilating into Goyim culture. They were losing their power structure. Uh, so in that period after that, you saw all this nihilism and just materialistic thought where God is dead. And so you got things like Marx, which is just, you know, Marxian economics. You get Freudian theory out of this. There's no more beauty. There's no more glory. There's no more wonder in the world. It's all nihilistic, nuts and bolts, and just raw power, getting control. And so in 1896, Theodore Herschel publishes The Jewish State. 1897, the first World Zionist Congress is held in Basel, Switzerland. And so imagine, if you will, all of these Jewish men, never any women at these meetings, you know, but yet the Jewish 
people always claim the moral high ground of telling Europeans that we're racist and sexist, etc. But and we should have multicultural and diversity in all of our governments and all of our decision making. But when it comes to Jewish decision making, then it's only the rabbis get together, and then the rabbis tell everybody else what to do. And so you know you have all of these Jewish supremacist men who are the best of the best from their communities going to Switzerland for this meeting of what the Jews are going to do in the coming Aquarian Age. And out of that meeting came the Zionist battle flag, which was the white background, meaning Jews are the only white people. The two blue bars, double meaning. First, the two rivers of the Nile and the Euphrates of greater Israel. You know, that, that the Jews say that that is Israel from the Nile to the Euphrates. God gave it to them, even though God is dead and none of us believe in God anymore. But yet, that is what is written, and that's ours. And so that's where we're going to set up our world government. And then, instead of the menorah, they chose the ancient pagan symbol of the God-man, the perfect man of the hexagram. And it's interesting to see that that symbol only started getting associated with Jewry after 1126. That's when it started showing up first on magic charms for doing Jewish black magic, and then started getting uh, associated with, like on tombstones and things like that. That is the symbol that the Jews chose for the center. Now, the original battle flag also had the seven stars of the hidden hand. We talk about the you know the die, the six-sided die and how to get the you know the sevens from that. And so it had the seven stars around that six-pointed star. That was removed. They also had in the center the esoteric symbol of Leo, the beast, the beast of Zion, Boz as I call him, great and powerful, because the esoteric symbol of the Aquarian age is Leo, the exoteric of course, is the Aquarius, the water bearer, the two bars, uh, you know, it's usually written as two wavy lines to symbolize Aquarius, but they chose the two straight bars on the battle flag, okay? So that became the world Zionist battle flag. So now they've got a flag, they've got an organization, they've got a target of we're going to create greater Israel, how are we going to do that? So in 1902, they had the Russian Zionist Congress. And somebody apparently either uh, managed, somehow got their hands on a copy of the Protocols of the Elder of Zion. So in 1903, uh, these were translated and released. And that was sent out as a warning to all of Europe, much like the Illuminati uh, discovery, which was an earlier form of this, we've talked about on the shows. It's the same kind of system, just an earlier form. But you know, when those documents were discovered, and uh, Belgian government sent that warning out, so uh, the Protocols of the Elder Zion was released. And it was basically uh, all of these best of the best, brightest rabbis getting together, figuring out how they're going to go about this world conquest to defeat the Goyim and destroy Western civilization and set up their new world, you know, one world government out of greater Israel. Again, we're looking at motive here. 
So now we need to talk about means. In 1913, this Jewish Rothschild-driven cabal managed to, you know, of course, you know, you, know, you had the build up the Rothschilds empire, and we've seen all how the European wars went. Uh, but then, you know, looking at the Rothschild influence in the United States, and have to remember that from day one, there have been two competing systems for the United States. One was the Great Experiment, which was self-ruled, printing our own money, having local governments, the idea of private property and individual rights, which is the antithesis of everything in the Talmud when it comes to goy slaves. Goys have no rights. They only have privileges based on their merits and worth to their master. So the Great Experiment, and then on the other side, you had the Great Work. And the Great Work, of course, is the static a new world order that the Jews are trying to put in place with their uh, Shabbat Goy groups like the Freemasons, etc. So they managed to get a central bank from the Federal Reserve in 1913, and it, the Federal Reserve is no more federal than Federal Express. It's a private Jewish-controlled bank that prints money out of thin air loans it to us at interest. Of course, you know, Jews always loan money to Goy at interest. And so now the, you know, the Americans have this illusion that we're in debt to these Jewish bankers, and we should just basically be handing over our country piece by piece to pay off our debt. So that was the, um, coupled with the, you know, the income tax that they imposed in the United States, created this great amount of wealth. So now you've got this Jewish cabal that has incredible means. Now, this was a multi-stage global war. It was an asymmetrical war, uh, unlike any war that Europe has ever faced. And we saw it play out in, of course, uh, 1914, World War I, 1915, the Armenian Genocide, 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, all of these things, these events were all coordinated by Jewish groups. For example, the Armenian Genocide, that was the, you know, Jews, the Dome and the Young Turks, that was Jewish, and the crypto-Masons down there. And then the Bolsheviks, that was Jews working with Freemasons in Europe and the Ukraine. Then in 1923, you had the Pan-Europa Plan, the Kalergi Plan, which was how to destroy Western civilization and genocide white people with mass immigration. Then in 1932, of course, you had the Holodomor in the Ukraine. Then World War II starts, 1939 to 45. And key thing about that was the Americans did not want to get involved with the World War I. It was the Jewish media that forced that war. Mr. Mike King has done some phenomenal work on World War I and World War II. You know, if you're not familiar with Mr. Mike King's work at tomatobubble.com, definitely uh, treat yourself to some great data dots. He is a great writer, great use of graphics, uh, just hard-boiled down. There's no fluff about it at all. It's just, here's the facts, boom, 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 and he's just you know, will definitely level you up on World War One, World War Two. But key to World War Two was that the Americans did not want World War One, and they definitely didn't want to get involved with World War Two. 
and elected FDR because he promised that he would not, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, so he promised that we would not get involved with another European war. Of course, the machinations of forcing your enemy to do something so that then you can use it against them. And you know, we see this all the time with the Antifa types where they ankle bite, goad and goad and pick, try to pick a fight. And then once you get, they get the reaction, they claim the victim, the wounded party, and then they rally everybody against the person that was probably just defending themselves or I just had enough. You know, that's the thing is, you know, the person who says, I've had enough of you, punches the Jew out. And of course, the Goyim must die if he ever punches a Jew, right? That's in the Talmud. So how do you motivate the Americans? They go to the Japanese into attacking Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was then, of course, the bloody shirt, you know, waving the bloody flag, the bloody shirt. Uh, We were attacked. We have to attack Japan. And, of course, Japan has an alliance with Germany and Italy. Never mind that those are Christian European countries. We're going to be killing our cousins and fellow Christians. But, you know, Japan attacked. We have to go and you know, and help our allies, Britain, which is interesting that, you know, we'd already fought two huge, devastating wars with England, the War of Independence in 1776, and then the War of 1812. And suddenly, though, through the magic of the city of London and international Jewry, England is now our best ally, and we have to go fight those mean old Germans in Europe uh, because they're the, they say they're the master race and they want to take over the world. And then you find out later, of course, that the National Socialists, their big crime was they caught on to the Jewish trick because they were very clever Germans and figured out a money system outside the Jewish system that made all of Germany prosper that was called the German miracle. And, of course, that was the big sin, that they had gone against the Rothschild Central Bank, the Jewish banks. So we got involved with Pearl Harbor, I mean World War II, because of Pearl Harbor. After the war, you know, we see that World War I was all about breaking apart the Ottoman Empire so that England, the UK, could go in and control Palestine. That was the Balfour Declaration. You know, now the Jews want chunk of Palestine in return for bringing the Americans into the war to save uh, England, who, you know, it's like, why was England at war with Germany in the first place again? Because the Jews said so. So that laid the foundation for Israel being formed in 1948. And the first U.S. president to acknowledge Israel and kind of set the president for the rest of the world was President Harry Truman. And it's interesting when you find out that he had been not only bombarded with these Jewish lobbying groups telling him that the Jews have to have a homeland because they're persecuted and six million Jews have been killed. And we find out that that they've been using that story since 1811 about the six million Jew figure number. And just you know, research that on the net. You see how many times they've used that. That's a Talmudic number. That's a magic number. It has nothing to do with reality, the six million number. Uh, so he had these you know, Jews just, you know, oh, you've got to help the Jewish people. You've got to help the Jewish people have our own homeland. And at the same time, he had the Jewish mob 
threatening him. And his daughter said in her book that the uh, Ergen was sending him letter bombs. And so threatening the family with letter bombs, which was a very common Ergen trick, Stern Gang, Murder Incorporated, uh, Purple Gang. All these groups were using science uh, to kill people in new and creative ways. And one of those was using chemistry and the new explosives that you just takes a little bit of explosive to kill somebody that could easily be put in an envelope. And these, you know, electrical triggers, the new electrical triggers and, you know, Trusting Americans that think the U.S. Postal Service, you just open a letter. You know, who's going to take the time to send you a letter if it's going to blow you up? You know, that's the naive Americans. But, you know, so Israel is formed because Harry Truman said yes. He also authorized the NSA, no such agency, or the National Security Agency. So Israel has a beachhead in their greater Israel agenda. In 1946... You had the King David Hotel bombing. And so this was, again, carried out by the Ergen, which was a Jewish terrorist organized crime gang. And, you you know, you have to keep in mind that Israel was founded by organized crime coming together worldwide. You know, all these gangsters, you know, the Purple Gang, Murder Incorporated, Meyer Lansky, they were all Zionists that were, you know, by any means necessary to bring about this great cultural Marxist, you know, greater Israel thing. So now the problem is to run the British out of Palestine. So they started carrying out terrorist terrorist attacks against Britain. So the 1946 King David Hotel bombing was carried out by the Ergen. Then in 1954, you had Operation Susanna, which became known as the Levon Affair, where these Jews were either carrying out or were hiring uh, Arabs to carry out terrorist attacks against Egyptian targets, American targets, and British targets. And these were all soft targets. And this was the whole uh, post-Trotskyite, you know, Bolshevik uh, model of instead of going after military targets uh, and, you know, armed, uniformed men, because used to, in Europe, the standard was military men fought military men. You know, women and children, civilians were left alone as best they could, right? And you had battlefields away from everybody else. Well, the Jews, the Bolsheviks, you know, in their ruthlessness, uh, you know, said, we're going to go after soft targets and use terror as political means. And so that was a whole series of terrorist attacks against, you know, like I said, Egyptians, Americans, and British targets. Uh, that got exposed as the Levon Affair. Then in 1967, during the Six-Day War, of course, we know that Israel deliberately attacked the USS Liberty. And one of the things we didn't get to talk about in the first hour was the American Foreign Legion uh, has announced that they are requesting a formal reinvestigation or opening the investigation back up on the Liberty. So people are definitely waking up on the USS Liberty. Now, in the end, that was to try to frame Egypt for the attack to bring the U.S. into the war that they hoped would put Russia against NATO and start World War III. That was the goal, to wipe out you know, all those horrible Amalek and then leave greater Israel as the sole superpower. Well, it's not easy to, sh- you know, to uh, destroy a highly trained U.S. Navy crew, and they managed to sustain 
all those horrible attacks and still get a signal out, sneaker net, get the signal out by any means necessary. And that was thwarted. And it's been a PR nightmare for Israel ever since. Uh, and I hope it continues to get worse. Then, and of course, the 1973 was the Yom Kippur War. And then that was in October 6 to 26 in 1973. Also in 73, Shmuel Katz publishes Battleground, Fact and Fantasy in Palestine. And that book is key because that was the birth of the Hasbro propaganda movement, where Israel knew that they had to seize control of the narrative, and to do that, they had to put together Hasbro, which means explanation, uh, where they're going to juice-plain to you what happened, and not allow anybody else uh, you know, equal time. And so that book, Battleground, Fact and Fantasy in Palestine, started the Hasbro movement. And so that was Israel's global uh, PR, psychological warfare movement. Then 82, the war with Lebanon. Uh, Israel invaded Lebanon in June of 82, and that was not only a military disaster for Israel, but a public relations disaster, and that's what really pushed the Hasbro movement forward. You know, they had no problems with going to war and you know for greater Israel and killing everybody, but instead of thinking they had a anything wrong with them, they just realized they had a public relations problem. And so that really uh, pushed the Hasbro agenda forward. In nineteen eighty two, Odin Yenin writes a strategy for Israel in the nineteen eighties. This was probably the next layer of the Greater Israel Agenda, which was all about how to balkanize and destroy all the existing Arab states, all the nations uh, that were basically created at the fall of the Ottoman Empire after World War I and World War II. Uh, so you now you've got these new Arab nations, but the Jews, of course, think they're too powerful. So Odin Yen's plan is how to break all those nations down into small warring factions that will be no threat to Israel. Now, and of course, in the 80s, that's when the Hasbro uh, program, public relations campaign, went full tilt. And you, know, you can really see that in the media and also in the churches. Suddenly, you know, you had all these representatives from Israel sending all these Christian churches stuff about the promised land and you know, we're making the desert bloom and we're God's chosen people and you've got to support us and come live on a kibbutz or no better still just send money and put these posters of Israel up in your church uh, break rooms and things like that and so everybody will love Israel now in 1986 Benjamin Netanyahu wrote terrorism how the West can win and of course Benjamin Netanyahu is now prime minister of Israel in 1987, in the United States, we used to have a thing in media called the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine was established in 1949 because of what the Americans feared was one identity politics group getting full control of the media and shutting everybody else's viewpoints down. So in this new media of radio and later television and you know the existing newspapers, you had a thing called the Fairness Doctrine, where you had to provide time for opposing viewpoints. Okay, in 1987, that was shot down by President Reagan. 
So the FCC no longer was mandated on uh, licensed radio stations and television stations uh, having to offer equal time for opposing viewpoints. This allowed television to basically be weaponized, radio to be weaponized, because only one viewpoint was allowed to be heard in the United States from that point on. It's that idea of if we own the uh, station, we own the narrative. And it's that corporate model versus you are a public utility. Yes, you're a private company, but you still serve the public. And we have laws here about communications. It's like, no, if we own it, we own it, and we control the narrative. And we see that same mentality. And, of course, the new you know, uh, three, third-generation, fourth-generation communications we're dealing with now and them trying to ban us. Then in 1990 to 91 was the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And this was against Iraq. And basically, short story there, Kuwait was slant-drilling oil which basically means they were digging oil that was under the border of Iraq. And everybody said, oh, you're okay to tell them to stop. And so when Iraq moved in to make Kuwait stop, of course, they took the bait, and uh, the Jews in America started waving the bloody shirt. And that's when we got the infamous public relations story of the babies and incubator story where this Jewish PR firm and the Bush administration came out, the first Bush administration, Bush Sr., and talking about babies and incubators and demonizing these Iraqis, and we've got to go to war to protect Kuwait. And one of the, I guess, uh, softening your targets of that war was after Iraq pulled out and they were on their way home, the U.S. military basically massacred them all. And that was some of the most horrific footage of seeing this retreating army that was completely destroyed by the so-called willing coalition, which was basically the U.S. uh, military acting under Israeli direction, in my opinion. You know, that was just horrific. You know, when you have a retreating army, European rules of conduct, you know, that was foul play. But, of course, you know, this... They were killing babies in incubators. Uh, everybody thought it was they got what they deserved, right? Because they were an invading army. Invading armies get what they deserve. And of course, the Iraqi military, you know, did not recover fully from that, which softened them up for uh, the post uh, post nine eleven attack, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But you know, they you know definitely devastated the Iraqi forces there. Then nineteen ninety four. In the United States, on uh, this was under the President Clinton administration, the Communication Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, or CALEA, was established for these new third-generation merged telephone and computer networks, which mandated that all the equipment, all the switching equipment, had to have a back door so that law enforcement could access it. And this flew in the face of all the traditional uh, legal electronic surveillance in the United States, which was basically pen and register and tap and trace. And suddenly, you know, they said, no, we've got to be able to get back door. And this allowed not only to see uh, the source numbers of phone calls and communications, but the destinations as well. 
and the content of the packet. Now, under the law, law enforcement was never allowed to look at the content of the conversations, just source and destination numbers of you know the phones, etc. But you know, locks are for honest people. Of course, this uh, Kaleo was at the heart of not only the illegal NSA electronic surveillance in the United States, but also that these Israeli groups, especially drug smugglers that were selling ecstasy, were able to evade the DEA by staying one step ahead of them because they were going in and uh, tapping into this Kalia-compliant equipment and uh, monitoring communications. And they could do it from any computer. And that's what a backdoor is. So you didn't have to actually go to the phone switch stations anymore to do alligator clamps on 66 blocks, like in the movies, to listen to a phone conversation. You could do it from any terminal. And that was exposed in the Carl Cameron four-part series about Israeli spying in America, which is in this week's playlist. So be sure to go and watch that flashback and see what you see now. Um, In 1996, Richard Pearl uh, published a clean break, a new strategy for uh, securing the realm. And when he says the realm, he's talking about greater Israel. And this was basically expanding on Odin Yenin's work. Then in 1997, a Zionist fifth column by the name of the Project for the New American Century, or PNAC, was founded by Jewish supremacists William Crystal and Robert Kagan. And what's interesting there is this was a group of Zionists you know, that all had you know, dual citizenship with Israel, and half of them, you know, they started out as Trotskyites, half of them went out to the, become what they call the New Left, and that was the Hillary Clintons and the Obamas and the Rahm Emanuels and all those uh, on the left, the New Left's following Saul Alinsky's rules. Well, the other half went to the right to form, become the neocons, the neoconservatives. And it was all about basically taking over the Republican Party to make it all about serving Israel's interest in the Middle East and you know, uh, carrying out this you know, world government agenda. And so Project for a New Adventure Century become this huge think tank. And so when you go out and read the signatory list, it's a who's who of world Zionism. Um, they published their Statement of Principles on June 3rd, 1997. Now, in 2000, PNAC, in September of 2000, PNAC published a paper called Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces, and Resources for a New Century. What's key there is the line in that paper saying, further the process of transformation, further... The process of transformation, even if it brings about revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. So I go through that again. In the 2000, September 2000, one year before 9-11, PNAC publishes a line in the paper for rebuilding America's defenses further. The process of transformation, meaning the greater Israel agenda for the reshaping the Middle East and the world under what they call Pax Americana, but is actually Pax Judaica. So you got to watch that. So the process of transformation, even if it brings about revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, 
absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Now, one month later, on the 12th of October 2000, the USS Cole was attacked, and the Jewish media immediately told us that it was this mysterious group called Al-Qaeda led by the new Hitler, the new Haman, Osama bin Laden. So this was called seeding the story. You have an attack, media attention, all the world's looking at this new terrorist group led by this rich uh, uh, madman who lives in a cave in Afghanistan. Never mind his real name. The CIA considered him an asset named Tim Osman who helped them in the Afghanistan uh, war against the Soviet Union. But uh, so now we got this new boogeyman, and what's telling there was the FBI agent who was assigned to follow that was John O'Neill, and he was thwarted at every turn by a woman, Jewish woman, by the name of Barbara Bodine, and he always complained about that that he was not able to investigate that. Basically, he was supposed to just rubber stamp the predetermined. It's Al Qaeda. It's Osama bin Laden. Just go with it. And I always say you can understand 9/11 by three FBI agents: John O'Neill, who died on 9/11 after being hired by the Jews to be head of security; then Robert Hansen, who was put in a hole before 9/11; and then Dale Watson who handled not only the, he assisted on the Oklahoma City bombing investigation or non-investigation, he was in charge of both the investigation for 9-11 and for the anthrax attacks. So study those three FBI agents. So in 2000, you know, November 2000, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were elected president and vice president of the United States. January 20th, 2001, George Bush uh, Jr. was sworn in. Then in 2001, February 18th, FBI agent Robert Hansen was arrested. And on July 6th, 2001, he's sentenced to 15 life terms after pleading guilty. And a lot of people think that he was coerced or tortured into pleading guilty to 15 counts of espionage. He was put in a solitary confinement hole and basically never heard from again. Now, Hollywood immediately went into a media frenzy to demonize this guy as uh, you know, a traitor to the country and you know, playing up that he was this, you know, pretended to be this devout Catholic Christian you know, patriotic American, but it really he was this horrible, the worst spy uh, since Jonathan Pollard, but we're not going to say Jonathan Pollard because that'll make us look bad. And, you know, unlike Jonathan Pollard, who got sent to summer camp in North Carolina and then released early, uh, Robert Hansen got put in a hole and nobody's, you know, I haven't heard anybody say they've talked to him since. I don't think they let his wife talk to him. So, on May 21st, the film Pearl Harbor is released in Hawaii to this big hoopla about the, you know, the anniversary, some anniversary of the Pearl Harbor event, blah, blah, blah. They just really played up the Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then on May 25th, it was released in the USA. And it's interesting to note, at the time of 9-11, the number one movie in the United States and possibly in 
most of Europe was Pearl Harbor. They just really pushed that Pearl Harbor narrative on everybody, and this was part of the psychop. And if you look at the people who produced that film, who the who was acted, who did the screenwriting, you can see where they were going with this. This was total manipulation, total psychological warfare. That you know, Pearl Harbor was in the minds of everybody when 9/11 happened in July, the 24th of July, 2001. Larry Silverstein obtained a 99-year lease on the entire World Trade Center complex. And what's interesting there, Mr. Christopher Bolin has done some outstanding work, and he's actually on tour now. If you get a chance, if you're on the East Coast, definitely go see his uh, presentations on 9-11 Truth. But he did some outstanding work showing the history of how many times the Jews tried to take control of the Port Authority World Trade Center complex in the past and how Larry Silverstein managed to basically take over a public utility and a 99-year lease on the entire WTC complex, which was a horrible investment because it was unoccupied. It was a nightmare to maintain. You know, it may have been an engineering marvel, but it's what we call a white elephant as far as real estate. They had low occupancy. They weren't making money, so it was basically a money pit. It was needing massive asbestos removal to be compliant with city ordinances, which was going to cost millions of dollars, if it could even even be done. And this is what the shrewd business investing Jew, who's made a career in buying uh, smart buying properties, uh, he invests in this money pit months before 9-11. Uh, the 1st of September, Israeli uh, owned, or partially owned, I think Israel owns 49% and the other 51% is privately owned. But Zim Shipping Company, which is a international shipping company that had their offices in the World Trade Center Tower, they broke their lease early and it cost them $50,000 for breaking that lease, but they got out of there. On the 10th of September, the Tokyo branch of Goldman Sachs sent out a warning to their employees to avoid American buildings. In 2001, on the 10th, Donald Rumsfeld announced $2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon. And this was when Rabbi Dov Zakim uh, was in charge of the accounting department. And it just so happens that the accounting department of the Pentagon was the one that was destroyed. The sides that was in the direct path of the projectile, whatever it was, that would have taken out all the top brass, which seems like that would be the clever target if you wanted to hurt America's resources. But instead, they took out the accounting department. And so that $2.3 trillion just disappeared and was overshadowed by the events of the next day. Rabbi Dov Zakim would go on to work and become a vice president at Booz Allen Hamilton. And if you're a follower of the show, you know the history of me and Booz Allen Hamilton. On the morning of September 11th, two hours before the first attack hit whatever happened, the first big boom on one of the towers, Israeli company Odigo sends out a warning and over 4,000 people received this instant message, 4,000 Jews, and not a single one of them, including sitting Senator Al Franken, echo, 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 bothered to warn any of authorities. So this is you know Talmudic Mashira law. You never expose the crimes of fellow Jews. So they got the warning. They didn't tell anybody else. 
But statistically, it's amazing because on 9-11, only five Israelis died, and I think three of those were supposedly on the planes. So that was statistically impossible that that many didn't show up for work that day. What's the coincidence, right? Then, just quick follow-up of what happened. I want to cover the anthrax because this is key. Of course, you know, the attacks happened, and everybody from architects and engineers, 9-11 Truth, uh, Mr. Ryan Dawson, just, you know, uh, Michael Rivera over at What Really Happened, just so many, Mr. Uh, Griffin, uh, Mr. Christopher Bolin, you know, all these people who have done much greater research on what actually happened. I've got their work in the playlist. Uh, you know, go research it for yourself. Really good work, especially, like I said, Mr. Christopher Bolin's work is outstanding. So Architects for Engineers for 9-11 Truth, their science is impeccable. But anyway, the follow-up attack, and of course the part of the 9-11 attack that got disappeared immediately was the thwarted attack on the bridge, which Sabelle Edmonds talks about in her book, Classified Woman, that the communique that was intercepted talked about buildings being hit by planes and bridges being taken out. And there was a truckload of Israelis packed, and it was packed with explosives on the George Washington Bridge, and they were thwarted by law enforcement uh, before they could detonate the truck, and that saved the George Washington Bridge from being destroyed. And of course, that's one of those symbols, like tearing down Confederate monuments, taking out the George Washington Bridge for cultural identity. But the follow-up attacks that got lost in the narrative, like the truck bomb, was the anthrax attacks. Now, if you notice, the anthrax attack has slowly been uh, left out of all the anniversary shows. And all these shows that talk about the attacks of 9-11, they don't talk about anthrax anymore, mainly because anthrax has a fingerprint and we were able to trace back the anthrax in the letters to a U.S. military base, Fort Dietrich. Now, why that's important is a Jew by the name of Philip Kazak, who was a total Zionist, hated Arabs with a passion, had a club called the Camel Club, and was fired uh, from Fort Dietrich for racial attacks against Arab co-workers, especially Egyptians. He was fired and was later caught on videotape in the lockers where the anthrax was stored. Now, if you go through the timeline, and I've got Mr. Ryan Dawson's timeline in the playlist of the anthrax letters, and he's got it all nicely mapped out with a little animated graph. But on September 18th, two anthrax letters were mailed. On September 20th, three letters were mailed. Uh, Two were fake. One was real. None of those got opened until October 5th. The first letter to be opened was Tom Brokaw was uh, the first to open an anthrax letter on October 5th. On September 26th, Philip Zach sends a letter to the Justice Department blaming Arab Dr. Ayid Assad who was working at Fort Dietrich for the attacks. And if you remember, the letters said, Death to America, Death to Israel. On 9-11, Ariel Sharon immediately comes out and pledges solidarity with America on this new global war on terror. 
Ehud Barak is at the London BBC talking about how it's the work of Osama bin Laden and Israel stands with America against this new world terror, this new war on terror, and the buildings haven't even collapsed yet. No investigation's been done, but yet he's completely nailed it. Jerome Hauer is on all the American TV shows doing the same thing. They're you know, pre-selling this Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda did it while everybody is in that trauma state of fear. So they're accepting this narrative that it was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda because they did the USS Cole. And so they were there soapboxing this immediately on the morning of 9-11. So the follow-up anthrax attacks, the timelines don't match. And so you go back to who had the motive, the means, and the opportunity. They never investigated Philip Zach. Uh, FBI went after, uh, after Assad got uh, cleared. They then went after Stephen Hatfield, made his life miserable for years. And then they went after Bruce Ivins. And he died mysteriously, supposedly, of a Tylenol with codeine overdose. On October 26, the U.S. Patriot Act was passed without even being read, and on the 28th of October, excuse me, 28th of September 2001, Osama bin Laden does an interview that's are sent out by the BBC where he completely denies the attacks and tells the United States to look at the shadow government within their government for their answers. And it was reported on the 26th of December 2001 that Osama bin Laden died from complications due to kidney disease. The man was on dialysis. But yet, even though all these agencies reported him dead then, they continued to perpetuate these uh, other Osama bin Ladens to keep the narrative going of this boogeyman of the new, you know, the new Hitler, the new face of terror, the new Haman, when most people accept that, you know, the real Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with these attacks, and he died in 2001. But this was the start of the War of Terror, which we've been living under for the past 16 years. And so you think about how much everyone's lives has changed, everyone's nations have changed, how they've used this to create the so-called war refugees to send third world people into European Western civilization nations to destroy them. And again, the entire end game goal is for greater Israel. And so like any crime, you always ask who had the motive, who had the means and who had the opportunity. And when you look at those three factors and then you ask yourself, Kibona, who benefited from 9-11? And you look back at 16 years of total misery for everybody except for Israel and the Jewish profiteers of this. And the answer always comes back to all roads lead to Israel, world Zionism, and the greater Israel agenda, which has as part of its plan white genocide. And as we say here in North Kakalaki, I'm again it. <laughs> so with that said, I'd like to thank you all for joining me this evening on The Breakfast Club. I hope everyone has a wonderful week. And until next time, I will see you all at the rendezvous. Mm-hmm.